Good morning. Welcome to Axios Today. It's Thursday, September 17th. I'm Nyla Boodoo. Here's how we're making you smarter today. The privacy risks of online school, plus safety, suburbs, and the election. Some situational awareness around Hurricane Sally. It's caused at least one death in Alabama, and southern parts of that state and the Florida panhandle are experiencing catastrophic flooding. The National Guard is headed to Pensacola today, and there are three more storms developing in the Atlantic. And now to today's one big thing, the race to the vaccine finish line. Are we moving too fast on a vaccine for the coronavirus? That's a question that's tough to ask because everyone wants a cure for this pandemic yesterday. Sam Baker is Axios' healthcare editor, and he's been reporting this out. Hey, Sam, so is this a question of being too fast or too slow? It's really not. And it's very easy to see it that way, and it's tempting to see it that way. But a lot of the experts who I've talked to have said, look, moving fast is great. It's a global pandemic. But once we get to the day when something's been submitted to the FDA and the FDA says it's okay, there's just going to be this incredible pressure from everyone to say, okay, we're done. Now everybody just needs to take this vaccine. And that would be premature. So where are we at with the number and the timing of trials? So there are eight products in phase three trials, which is the final phase. We could very well have anywhere from two to five or seven vaccines crossing the finish line within very close proximity to each other, which is part of the complication here. And when we hear or say that this vaccine has to be safe and effective, what does that mean exactly? It has to be safe, meaning it can't cause any particularly serious side effects. And the standard the FDA has laid out is that a vaccine has to be at least 50% effective. What that means is that it reduces the chance of a symptomatic infection by 50% or more. Are we talking about for the general population? Are we looking at specific groups that are high risk? We're talking about the general population. But obviously we know the coronavirus does not affect all people equally has had a disproportionate toll on people of color. We know that it is worse, for example, if you have certain pre-existing conditions. And so in a perfect world, we'd want to have these clinical trials say, okay, well, which one of these eight vaccines is the best, the most effective, or the safest for people with obesity or people with diabetes? These trials are not set up to answer that question. We're just going to get a big blanket number and have to go from there. And so is the takeaway from this that in many ways these are good problems to have? The speed at which we have developed so many products for a new virus is literally unprecedented. And anytime you do something for the first time, there's going to be new challenges and issues that you have to manage within doing that. So yes, these, these are good problems because we seem to be in the process of achieving something that was once unthinkable, and so now we have to sort of think about these second-order things. There are things we have to get right. They are things we need to manage well and that need our attention. But the message from these things existing is not, oh, we shouldn't have moved fast. It's better to have a vaccine than to have the perfect vaccine. Sam Baker is Axios's healthcare editor. We'll be back in 15 seconds with the struggle to maintain privacy while doing school online. Welcome back to Axios Today. 
Teachers and school districts are scrambling to make online classes work. But as they rework their classes, new questions are popping up around children's online privacy. There's actually a federal law that's specifically written to protect kids. The Children's Privacy and Protection Act controls what internet companies do with online data for minors. But it's not something school districts have ever had to worry about before. Ashley Gold is a tech reporter for Axios, and she's been talking to experts about what concerns are surfacing as the switch to online schooling becomes more permanent. We've just got a lot of new education technology companies that aren't necessarily well-versed in privacy. We've got teachers making decisions about what tech to use in their online classroom without checking with districts or knowing all the rules. I have no doubt that teachers would never intend to break uh, children's privacy or hurt them in any sort of way, but they've got lesson plans to put together. They've got entire years worth of plans that they've had to shift to online, and it makes perfect sense that privacy wouldn't be top of mind for them. They simply don't have the time and expertise to do this exactly the way it should be done. In your reporting, are you hearing that it is coming down to individual teachers rather than school districts that are setting these rules? So it's a little bit of both. If you work in a school district that is well-resourced, you could afford to hire someone that looks over your contracts for educational technology companies that you're partnering with and ensures that they are compliant with the law and that they are handling data in a secure way. Not every school can afford to have someone full-time that does that for them. Are there some basic principles that teachers need to be keeping in mind in order to protect children's privacy? It's about following state law. If you want to record your class or take a screenshot of your class, teachers should be looking over the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act and making sure they have a decent idea, at least, of how it works. And just asking permission. Sometimes it's as simple as running a question by a children's parent before you decide to do anything with their online data. No clear end in sight for online schooling. The bottom line is teachers, school districts, and parents need a plan for how children are going to be protected online. Ashley Gold is a tech reporter for Axios. The issue of safety in this election may be a really important thing when we're talking about the suburbs, particularly among white voters. Margaret Taleb is Exios's White House and politics editor, and she's got the latest polling on that from SurveyMonkey. Hey, Margaret, what does it say? There is a distinction between Americans, particularly white suburbanites, and here's how that breaks down. Among women in the suburbs who feel very safe, Joe Biden leads by 20 percentage points. But just go to the women who say they feel somewhat safe in the suburbs, that lead disappears entirely. And the very, very small leftover group of white suburban women who feel unsafe where they live support Trump over Biden by 10 points. Men are a little bit different, but it's a really similar pattern. So it seems like it's not a big distinction. What does this say to you? Well, 95 percent of suburban whites say they feel safe, whether it's very safe or kind of safe. So what we're looking at here is a strategy that might, in theory, work in very closely contested suburbs in swing states. That doesn't mean it won't work. If it comes down to 10,000 votes in a state, this might make all the difference. But it is not a strategy on which to base your campaign. What about Black voters? Well, Black Americans, no matter whether they're living in the suburbs or an urban or rural area, they still feel pretty safe on balance. But one in 10 Black suburbanites says they don't feel safe in their community. And that roughly doubles if you're a Black American living in a city or in a rural area. And that's important, too. 
Margaret Taleb is Axios's White House and politics editor. Before we go today, speak your mind and change will follow. Now's the time. Make your tomorrow. MTV has always been vocal about voting, like their Rock the Vote ads back in the 90s with In Vogue. Rock the Vote! Madonna. Don't just sit there, let's get to it. Speak your mind, there's nothing to it. Vote! and a long list of other musicians since then. Now they're launching a new campaign with Viacom called Vote for Your Life, and it's designed to make early voting easier. To help with that, MTV's paying for the printing and postage of any ballot requested through their website. You can find out more at voteforyourlife.com. That does it for us today. You can reach our team at podcasts at axios.com or reach out to me on Twitter at Nyla Boodoo. If you want more news before tomorrow, tune into our afternoon podcast recap. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. And we'll see you back here tomorrow morning. <laughs>